that as we read your word tonight, Lord, that as we uh, talk about it, as we discuss it, Lord, that we would see your glory. We would see who Christ Jesus was as he came and who you have declared him to be and told us he was uh, in your word. Father, I pray that we'd read this word as true, that we'd know it is authoritative, and we'd come to worship your son uh, and glorify you with our words, our thoughts, and our actions. Lord, ultimately, I pray that the true work, the true nature of Jesus Christ would be communicated and ultimately understood uh, by the students here tonight. And thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> last week went over a few things. One of them that was rather insignificant last week, but I think does uh, bear uh, importance this week was um, the, the crowds are trying to figure out who Jesus is. And, and we know that from the first eight chapters as they're following him around and seeking to know more of him. But last week specifically, we saw an excerpt that takes place in Matthew and Mark as well, uh, where Herod it takes an interest in who Jesus Christ is. And so he starts kind of asking around. He's thinking on it. You see that he's perplexed. He's worried uh, because he wonders if it's John the Baptist. Uh, but ultimately, like, uh, like the text says here, but as we also know, he is not. This is normal. Uh, they're wondering if he's a prophet, if he's a teacher, or as you know, John the Baptist said when he came to him, which is what we know to be true, are you the one who is to come? Tonight, looking through the lens of the Apostle Peter, but also God the Father, we're going to address this question rather head on. Who is Jesus Christ? So, first, again, this is immediately after last week. In between, we had the feeding of the 5,000. But now, uh, as, they're, as Christ is praying alone, he asks uh, them quite kind of blatantly, who do the crowds say that I am? And they talk about it. Uh, of course, we know, as we've read, that what they're going to say is not true. The crowds are wondering whether or not he's Elijah, whether or not he's John the Baptist, or some other prophet that has risen, which this will come back up as we talk about the transfiguration at the end. Uh, but th- that's what they're grasping at straws to kind of figure out. They're thinking that he is a holy man of God. He is able to do these actions. It seems that the Spirit of God is at work within him, but they, they, they really don't have any understanding. I think it says in one of the Gospels, what good can come out of Nazareth? They really have no understanding of who Jesus is. They don't get it. They know he's a holy man. They know he can do great things. They know that he demonstrates great power, but they have no real understanding of who he is and what his nature is. And so they've said John the Baptist. They say Elijah. And then they mention one of the other prophets of old. But then rather specifically, he's no longer asking about the crowds. He's not asking about the multitudes. He's not asking about the 5,000 he just fed. He specifically looks to the disciples, looks to the apostles and asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaking up, which interestingly enough, you'll come to notice this in the Gospels, when there's a disciple who speaks up, it's typically Peter. And Peter speaks up, the Christ of God. Notice, he doesn't say Jesus, he doesn't give him his name. Of course, Christ is not asking that. He knows what his name is. Peter doesn't describe him as we've somewhat described him already in this text. He doesn't talk about how he comes from Nazareth. He makes no mention of Joseph or Mary or anything about his physical being. Christ has no wonder of what he is in that regard as he's asking them. He's asking them, apart from these things that you know of me to be true, who do you say that I am? Everyone else, the crowds, the multitudes, they're trying to figure out exactly who I am because of the power I demonstrate, because of the authority I have. But who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives his explicit answer, you are the Christ of God. Christ is not his name. I heard Alistair Begg say one time, or actually it was, yeah, it was Alistair Begg. He said, if you went to Nazareth and you looked for Christ's house, you wouldn't find a mailbox that says J period Christ. That's not how it works. Christ isn't his last name. Christ is his title. That's what he's referred to as. It's what he is. He embodies it. 
He is the title, the Christ. What this means, he is the chosen, the anointed of God. If you read through the New Testament, Christ and Messiah have the same word in Greek used somewhat interchangeably, except it refers to Christ when we're talking about uh, his name and Messiah when it's talking about his office. And so his office is that of the Christ, which means he is the Messiah, one who has come to save. Jesus is one who saves. He has the same actually Hebrew name as Joshua, but uh, Jesu being the one who saves and in Christ being the anointed. He is the anointed of God who has come to save the world. That's a rather, not no like serious etymology happening there, but a rather simplistic understanding of what his name means as we say it. Unfortunately, because none of us are actually linguists or have any kind of degree that Tolkien would have, and probably none of you know who Tolkien is, but we don't really see that when we hear names. A lot of times we read Hebrew names, we read Greek names in the New Testament, we don't really look into what they mean. Jesus Christ, he was the one anointed of God to come and to save. Peter saying the Christ of God has nothing to do with what he calls himself. It has to do with what he is and who he is and who he has come to be. He is the anointed of God who comes to save. That is his title, that is his office, that is his personhood. Something that isn't listed here, and there's a lot of things among the Gospels that are somewhat described differently than the other ones. And there's no inaccuracy, but there's some differences that the different writers thought to leave in and things to take out. Something that I do think is important is in Matthew 16, 17. After Peter makes this declaration, you are the Christ of God, Christ looks at him again. This is Matthew 16, 17. Sorry, it will not be on the screen. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We should take pause there. Peter did not come to an understanding of who Christ was. Apart from the work of the Father upon his heart and upon his head to give him knowledge of who Christ is, Peter would be just like the multitudes trying to figure out who this man is with all of his power. God has, has specific people who are his, who he has called to himself. And Christ has, among those 12 people, called to be his disciples, or among that multitude, has called 12 to be his disciples, to be apostles. And they have been given the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Peter knows because the Lord, in his grace, in his mercy, has given him the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And so this here, again, Luke does not include it, but I do think it's important. And Matthew's rendering of this narrative points out that this is not of Peter's own work. This is not of Peter's own doing, but it is God who has worked to give Peter this understanding of who Christ is. This type of faith, this type of knowledge in Jesus Christ only comes through the Lord. A true understanding of who Jesus Christ can only come from the Lord. You know, and... This Bible is powerful. It is the living word of God. It is true. It is always true. It is eternally true. But true belief and understanding of it is given to us by the Lord. There's nothing I've uh, done, and I can. I can spell out for you all the different reasons why you should trust the Bible, why it is historically accurate. And I think that is a good thing for you to look into and understand those things for yourself so that you see this faith you have, this understanding you have of Jesus Christ isn't built on straw. No one's going to take a match and burn to the ground the, the foundation we have for who Jesus Christ is. 
It's true. The Bible is true. And I, I can grant you out this entire story about the letters and how they've been written, how they've been copied, how the Lord has graciously preserved. But that's not the time for this. But what I do want to point out is that faith, that understanding, it comes from the Lord. Just as Peter has this understanding of who Jesus is in his office of the Christ, it has been given to him from the Lord. Salvation, this knowledge of Christ, only comes by grace from the Lord. Grace, by definition, cannot be worked for, it cannot be taken, it cannot be bought. If you've bought it, you were owed it. You were not owed grace, you were given it. It is unmerited favor. You did nothing to deserve it, you did nothing to get it, you did nothing in any way to appreciate it. It's that the Lord has given graciously salvation to the people. This is a hard concept, especially in the world we're in, as we have to work for everything around us to understand. But what we see is that this salvation that the Lord is giving through his son, the Christ, the one who has come to save, is completely a gracious gift from the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 spell this out beautifully. Salvation is by grace alone. I do think grace is a hard thing to put into picture, and I have a, there, there's a, an illustration that helped me when I was younger, but I think what would be more helpful is to turn to the Bible and see where we've seen God's grace lavished beforehand. You know, we have this story that has been pounded in the dirt and somewhat not, appre- uh, not appreciated enough. The story of Adam and Eve. Often when we hear of Adam and Eve, what we're told is, wow, God would punish them for eating a fruit. That's rather a harsh punishment to cause the fall of mankind for eating a fruit. And that is completely the wrong way to look at the story. This gracious God, this Lord of all, the sovereign king over everything in creation has given them everything, has given them dominion over the land and has told them they can eat of every tree except for the tree of good and evil. For on that day, they shall surely die. I remember in my early understanding of that story of Adam and Eve, I, I, I thought, and this was immature and it is not true, wow, that means God's a liar because they went on to live. Of course, the death that he's talking to is not of a physical death where he was going to take the life from their lungs and the blood from their veins, but he was talking about a spiritual death where we are cut off from the Father. We have no means of getting back to him. And in that moment... He has mercy on them by not smiting them where they stand and granting them the physical death that they so deserve. But instead, he kicks them out of the garden and gives them a promise of a a seed of woman that is going to come and rescue us from the, the pangs of death. As he kicks them out of the garden, he gives them this promise. And he doesn't just kick them out of the garden. First, Adam and Eve have made these just... Terrible, illegitimate, terrible, illegitimate type of clothes. They've tried to sew fig leaves together to cover their shame and nakedness. But the Lord, being merciful, being gracious, gives them clothes. And he kicks them out of the garden and gives them the promise that one day a son is going to come. And that son is here. As Peter answers him, you are the Christ of God. And he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Your own work has not granted you this understanding. But it is God who has given you this knowledge. As it's read in Matthew 16. What he's telling him is the promise is here. I am the Christ of God. I am the one who was anointed to save. And I have come for the salvation of man. As they end this conversation, there's one that comes and it's Jesus foretelling his death. I think he's going to do this twice more in Luke. But this is the first notion that Christ is going to have to die. And he says, the son of man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So, you know, this is exactly as it plays out. 
he was killed, and on the third day, he will be raised. Another interesting aspect is that in other Gospels, Peter, when Christ says that, says, no, Lord, he, he somewhat tells him, this is not going to happen. We're going to stand against this. And the Lord looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Which you think, of course, what a gracious thing for a disciple to do, to, to step in the way of the pangs of death of his leader. But that is not the sovereign will of the Lord. That is not the plan he has. The plan he has is to save man through his son's death. And so he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, saying, your plan is not better than my plan. The Lord has for me that I will die and on the third day be raised and it is going to be accomplished. Often, especially when I was younger, but even now, um, when, when, if, if, if you want to wrestle with the idea of this uh, death of the Lord, the question that tops, really pops up in my head is, why does Christ have to die? Why did that have to take place? In Isaiah 53, 10 and 12, I didn't put this in there, I don't think. Uh, you're welcome to flip there. We, we see the story of the suffering servant, and we see, yet it was the will of the Lord, this is verse 10, to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus has come to fulfill this suffering servant's role and he is going to bear our iniquities that many may be accounted righteous. Be accounted righteous. So why did Jesus have to die? Jesus had to die because God is a just God. Always and forever the penalties of sin have been death. First in the garden, as I mentioned earlier, as God has made for them these clothes of fur, of animal skin, a death occurred. What we see in Hebrews is that the penalty for sin is blood. Blood has to be spilt. And so us, we, we were deserving of death. And it would completely make God an unjust God if he was willing to say, hey, never mind your iniquity, never mind your sin, come into the kingdom. What that points out is that he, he would not be a God of justice. He does not seek to right, for right to be done. He does not seek for evil to be punished. He lets it go, but that's completely against his nature as a just God. Where wrong has occurred, there has to be a rectification. Things have to be rectified. And so we, being evil in the eyes of the Lord, bearing the sin of Adam and even our own sin, as we are sinful by nature and we are sinners, we couldn't just be let into heaven. We had to be made righteous. That's where the, the word that you've probably grown completely numb to, the word redemption, comes from. Have you all ever gotten a, a gift card or, or any kind of coupon? Coupon, sorry, that was my mom coming out a little bit. Uh, she says coupon. Don't understand it. Don't know why. That's what she says. If you've ever gotten a coupon or a, a ticket at an arcade, you see that it's redeemable at the end. And so it, it, you go up to the counter at Chuck E. Cheese or, or Bolero, I guess. Those are really the only two places where I've ever had to give in tickets. And you go up and you see the prizes that say 500, 1,200, 3,000. And the prizes that everyone wants, because all of those are still stupid. Like no one wants the 3,000 prize. They really want the 10,000 one. But the problem is you have to spend the equivalent of the money that that thing costs to actually win the tickets to get the prize, right? That's how arcades work. It's ridiculous. Anyway, so you go there. And you, you bring up your five tickets, your ten tickets, and you see that there's, there's candy at the bottom because that's all you have, and ten is next to it. And for your ten tickets, you can get a roll of Smarties. 
for all of your worth and all of the money you fit at this arcade. Sorry, this is really not the point of my sermon, but it's really coming into a rant on arcades. But you walk up, what you're doing, the action that is occurring is redemption. You're redeeming the 10 tickets for your blood, sweat, and tears that you've won at this arcade for the Smarties. That's what you're getting. Redemption is occurring. You're saying that cost 10 tickets and I have 10 tickets. And so I'm going to give you my 10 tickets for those four Smarties. That's how it works. That's redemption occurring. Something is owed. You owe them 10 tickets. And so in order to get your prize, you have to pay them 10 tickets. And then once you've paid them your 10 tickets, you now have Smarties that are worth 10 tickets. That's how it works. That's redemption occurring. We were sinful. We were guilty. We are completely deserving of death. And that was a cost that had to be paid. You had to be redeemed. In a metaphorical sense, you're the person on the 30,000 ticket shelf. And you, no matter how long you spend in that arcade, no matter how much money you spend, are never going to get 35,000 tickets. It's never going to occur. You can't do it with your human tools. You can't do it with your sinful nature. You cannot be perfect because you were born sinful. And so that's where we see Jesus coming in, this who, who is coming to save, this prophecy he's talking about and foretelling his death. A redemption is going to occur, to occur, and when the Son of Man is raised, death is going to be defeated. The redemption is going to take place. An atonement for sins is going to be made. That's the importance of Christ dying. That's why Christ had to die, because God is a just God. He was not going to allow for evil to go by unpunished. Instead, he required a sacrifice. He required a death. And so Christ came that he may be the suffering servant, and he may lay down his life for the ransom of many. We just went over this in Jeopardy, quid pro quo in Latin. That means this for that. Next time, if that's in there, you'll get it. This time you didn't, because you didn't know that. Now you do. Quid pro quo, this for that. Christ gave his life that we may have life and have it abundantly. A transaction occurred, a legal transaction where there was a debt to be paid. Christ paid the debt. And so those who believe in him may be saved. Immediately after saying this, he says to all the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I'll be real with you all. On the surface, this is not a motivating offer. But you have to give up your life for something. Of course, the li- your life is the most valuable thing you will possess in this life, if you think about it in terms of worth. Christ is in, in no way trying to manipulate them into following him. He's telling them the cost. He's laying out what it will cost. This is not a request. This is a promise that if you follow him, you will have to lay down your life. You cannot keep your life and have it be yours and follow Jesus. Following Jesus means selflessness, living for the glory of God. Keeping your life means hedonism, living specifically for yourself and whatever your heart desires. Hedonism and Christianity do not exist together except in the plan that John Piper has made, and we're not going to get into it. 
But hedonism and Christianity are against one another. Christianity calls for you to lay down your life for the sake of Christ Jesus. Hedonism calls for you to be your own God. It's idolatry. Christ is telling them to follow me, you will lose your life. But here's the wonderful thing. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses it or forfeits himself? None of you in here can keep your life. You all know that. It's the great equalizer death. We all know it's coming. We all know that one day it will get us. We know not when. We know not why. We know not of how old we're going to be. But we know that at some point in time we will die. My sister, I think I've said this before, but we went to the ICU unit after my grandmother had uh, open heart surgery. And Christian t-shirts can either be great or they can be literally the worst. And she had on a t-shirt that was meant to give you an example of like spreading the gospel. And on the front of it, it said something about like, it's a life or death situation. And on the back, again, we're at the ICU unit. This is the intensive care unit. People there are fighting for their lives, literally fighting for their lives. She walks in the shirt on the back of it. Statistics, this is terrible. Statistics prove 10 out of 10 people die. Don't wear that shirt to the ICU. But the point is, that's a shirt that can be truthful and put on for the purposes of evangelism because death is an equalizer. People die. We don't understand why. We don't get how. But at some point or another, your, your body will give out. It can be a surprise. It can be when you're young. It can be when you're rich. It can be when you're poor. It can be if you're male. It can be if you're female. Black or white, brown, Hispanic, whatever it is, all will meet death at some point. It is an equalizer. All of you. Please don't live the rest of your lives hanging with that over you. I'm just trying to reference the question. One of my favorite uh, missionaries uh, to point to is a guy named Jim Elliott. He died uh, for the sake of furthering the gospel. And one of his quotes that is often penned to him is, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm going to read that again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the point here. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What does it cost you if you live for the purpose of making money or building up your assets or building a farm or big walls or whatever else if you become president? What does it gain you if you know that at the end of the day, eventually you will cease to exist, you will return to the dust of which you were created and you will no longer be living on this earth? Christ is saying, but whoever would save his life will lose it. But, 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 whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Yes, if we, mu- if we are to follow after Jesus Christ, we must deny ourselves. We must desi- uh, deny our sinful or carnal tendencies. We must deny some of the things that we want to do because we know they're sinful. And we must pick up our cross. We must live for his glory and we must live for Christ Jesus. Quickly here as we look at verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The apostles are not still alive on earth. Often that's the question that comes up there. Are the apostles still alive? No, really we're kind of unsure about what he's referring to in terms of the kingdom of God. But there's several good answers of which I think fit the bill. It could be Pentecost where the Holy Spirit descends and is on the early church. It could be the ascension as we see Christ leave. That doesn't really make uh, the most sense because we will see the kingdom of God coming and the ascension is him leaving. Uh, we see the resurrection where he defeats death finally. So we see the power that's in Christ at the resurrection is also in power, uh, the power uh, within us, which is really where I think it goes back to Pentecost. But we also see the transfiguration he says, there are some standing here who will not test death until they see the kingdom of God. One of the clear examples we get of just 
the godliness, worth, the value, the, the deity of Jesus Christ is the transfiguration. And that's where we're going now in five minutes. Now about eight days, so after he's said these things, the cost of following him, he goes up on the mountain to pray. I want to point things out. He takes Peter, John, and James. Christ has 12 apostles. He has like three homeboys that he takes with him. And those are Peter, John, and James. They're his inner circle, those who he really is closest to, who he allows to see him in this moment. I just said homeboys, and that is vastly inappropriate for this context. This is the transfiguration. This is one of the most awe-inspired points in Scripture as we see uh, really the Holy Spirit come apart like a cloud. Then we see the Father speak about who His Son is. So we see all members of the Godhead in one presence at one time. As He was praying, the appearance of His face was altered. Trans, change. Trans means to change. Figure, appearance. He changes appearance. That's what we see here. So it's called the transfiguration because Christ literally changes his appearance. His clothes become dazzling white and the appearance of his face changes. So as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. There's a bunch of different theories about why Moses and Elijah are present at the transfiguration. To me, the one that fits most... What we just saw, the disciples confirming that Jesus is the Christ. Two of the surrounding theories that the crowds say he is, is Elijah or one of the other prophets of old. The most notable, surely, uh, the prophet who came to bring God's word for the Israelites, Moses. Of course, Aaron was then appointed as priest, but we see Moses and Elijah. And so both of these two revered, renowned, holy men of Israel appear in this transfiguration moment. And I really do think to completely, without any shadow of a doubt, portray Jesus is not them. He's not Elijah. He's not Moses. He's not one of these old two men of faith. He is something new. He is, as we're about to see, the Son of God. Now, Peter and those who were with him, by the way, this is a trait of the disciples. They fall asleep when they shouldn't. We're going to see that later on in Gethsemane as Christ is praying and the disciples fall asleep around him. He has to warn them twice. They were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw their glory in two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Both of these things are true. He is Master, and it is good that they are here to witness it, for this was the plan of the Lord. And as we just went over in Second Peter, this is referenced later on as an affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, God gave them his words, these words. Peter, of course, is born in uh, roughly about the turn of the century with Jesus Christ. And so he has no idea what Elijah and uh, Moses were to look like. That was thousands of years ago. Elijah less than, Moses more so. A long, long time ago, he does not know these people from Adam. He does not know them distinctly. He's heard of them. And he speaks with knowledge that he does not possess because the Lord gives it to him. Again, I think this points back to the fact that Jesus is not these two men. He is something different. One of the flaws here where he makes a good point, it is good that we hear, sure, he calls Jesus master, he's announcing his submission, but we shall make three tents. He puts them somewhat on a level playing field, and that is not true. Jesus is greater than Moses and greater than Elijah. The tents that are fit for them are not fit for him because Jesus is the king. As he was saying these things, as he's discussing with his Lord, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. I would be too. If y'all have ever seen any kind of scary movies, I don't watch them, but typically a trope within the genre is that when things are getting kind of scary, fog kind of descends. 
For all of you who went camping with us last week, there's something a little bit more eerie when you're walking around an annual burial ground when there's fog appearing. It just makes it a little bit sketchier than if it was completely clear. You're there during the day, no fog. It's bright outside, no problem. You're there at midnight, shouting, and there's fog. It could be kind of scary. Of course, they're not scared because it's foggy. They're scared because a cloud is coming around them and it I'm sorry, overshadows them. They're afraid as they enter it, and as they enter it, a voice came out of the cloud. Y'all, this is not only reminiscent, this is exactly what happened to the Israelites in um, Exodus uh, 13. Gosh, I didn't put these in there either. But this is exactly what happens with the Israelites as they're driven out by the Red Sea. They're led by a cloud. The Lord descends and leads them by cloud. We see again in Exodus 32, um, where Mo- they've built this tabernacle for the Lord, and they have this tent out to the side. And when Moses goes to convene with the Lord, he and his godliness descends upon the place like a cloud as he intercedes with Moses. It's his deity. It's how he's chosen to present himself. So as this cloud surrounds them, they're in fear of what is taking place. But when the voice speaks, they have no doubt who it is. As he says, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. A cloud surrounds them and God speaks. I just want to point out, he's completely affirming Christ's deity and who we know him to be, but he does something else. It is often the case that men and women alike fall asleep to sound teaching as we listen to those voices that do not belong. As you listen to the Pharisees of the time that are telling you about how you are to be legalistic and how to be a whitewashed tomb, having no real cognition about who the Lord is. As we listen to people today as we hear people telling us about what uh, gospel life you are to live and how the Lord wants you to live a certain way. And yes, those things are true, but that is not the purpose of the gospel, not for you to live this legalistic life where you think that you can deserve uh, salvation that you've been granted graciously. This life is about that the chosen one of God has descended among men, lived a perfect life and died that we could be with him. What Christ tells them in John 14, 6 is what we know to be true. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him. This is what we are to be listening to. Christ has come to fulfill the old law that his younger brothers and sisters, who cannot be held accountable by the law because of how much they fail it, he has gone forward as their representative to die that they may know him and live with him eternally. Wash cleaned and redeemed by his blood the lord comes to pronounce his deity this is my son the chosen one listen to him and when the voice had spoken this was the point to point out who he was for the three disciples that were following him to confirm peter's suspicion and knowledge that the lord had revealed him to that he was the christ the chosen one of god After this, they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. But later, and we talked about this uh, on Sunday morning, for those of you who are there, later we see in 2 Peter as he's affirming the things have taken place, he references this event. That he was present to the transfiguration as God Almighty, the creator of the universe, pointed out specifically who they were to listen to who we are to follow, who we are to seek, who is mightier and holier than us. It is the man, Jesus Christ. He came once and for all. He paid the sins of man that we may be with him in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, I just pray that your glory would be known. We would know of your son. We would know of the real person he is. We would know of your action of sending him because of your love for us, that we may have life, have it in him, and have it abundantly. Father, this life has no purpose apart from Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished with his life and death. And ultimately, his resurrection as he defeated death. I pray that these students in you would know him, that they would know him intimately, and they would know that they have no worries in this life, that that the physical needs they have are nothing compared to the spiritual needs that they have and have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I thank you for your son. It's in his name I pray. Amen.